Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. With Joe Biden well ahead in US opinion polls, the international community's beginning to focus on what a Biden presidency would mean for the world. The Democratic candidate gave a strong indication of his thinking in a recent article headlined, Why America Must Lead Again. I have two guests this week, Mira Rapp-Hopper, who's just published a new book, Shields of the Republic, where she makes a case for rebuilding America's alliance system. Alongside her, I'll be talking to Jeremy Shapiro, a former State Department official in the Obama administration. He's now at the European Council of Foreign Relations, and he's much more sceptical about whether American global leadership can or should be revived. But is American global leadership still possible or even desirable? That's the question we'll be debating in this week's show. There's certainly no doubt that since the Second World War, America's alliance system has been crucial to its global leadership. Successive presidents have heaped praise on American allies. Roosevelt became a mighty name in a world that went to war. From Franklin Delano Roosevelt. The president aligned the power and prestige of the United States on the side of the democratic nations, fighting a vicious combination of fascist power. I want to reaffirm to the people of Europe the constancy of the American purpose. To Ronald Reagan. We were at your side through two great wars. We're at your side today because, like you, we have not veered from the ideals of the West. The ideals Having of the lots of friends and treaty allies has helped America lead globally. And all U.S. presidents, even the relatively reticent Barack Obama, agreed that U.S. global leadership is a good idea. The renewal of American leadership can be felt across the globe. Our oldest alliances in Europe and Asia are stronger than ever. Our ties to the Americas are deeper. But along came Donald Trump. As president of the United States, I will always put... America first. He's consistently complained about American allies. Our allies are not paying their fair share. And I've been talking We're about paying this for recently. the military for to defend another nation that's 8,500 miles away. And the European not- Union has ripped this country off so much, it's unbelievable. Trump's America first policies have portrayed allies as a burden rather than an essential element of U.S. leadership. And the president's critics say he's been far warmer to authoritarian leaders like Vladimir Putin in Russia than to allied leaders like Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel. But would all that change in a Biden presidency? I started this week's discussion by asking Mira Rapp-Hopper why she thinks allies are so important to America. Well, Gideon, the United States formed this system in the early days of the Cold War, having rejected the idea of forming alliances with any country for the first 150 years of its life. But after the Second World War and as the Cold War was setting in, it recognized that it could no longer be safe by virtue of its own favorable geography and turned to a strategy that would allow it to hold the balance of power in Europe and in Asia using alliances to meet threats overseas and deter wars from starting 
rather than have them land on its shores. Now, this was a pretty uh, novel idea at the time. For centuries, countries had used alliances to fight and win specific wars. But the American gamble here was that Washington could use alliances to keep wars from starting at all. Um, and while it was an ambitious plan, it paid off better than its architects ever could have imagined and kept the peace at reasonable cost to the United States. But you argue in the book that the alliance system is in peril. I would guess that the main obvious source of peril is um, is Donald Trump, who is the first American president I can remember who doesn't appear to believe in it. There's no question that Trump is a significant source of peril. But in my story, he's actually more of a catalyst to all of this peril as opposed to a singular cause. I decided to write the book in 2016 after seeing Trump on the campaign trail repeatedly lambasting America's alliances as expensive and useless. But part of the reason I thought that the record of the system needed to be revealed was that his arguments actually weren't altogether unreasonable. Um, that is, when alliances are working, we don't actually see them at all. So for several generations of Americans who'd known relative peace and prosperity, it probably wasn't evident why the United States still had this far-flung network of allies. But in this story, the forces besieging the system are a lot bigger than Trump. And they include the fact that American rivals, namely Russia and China, have resurged in the 21st century and have figured out how to route their strategies around this system, advancing their aims in Europe and Asia without ever triggering American pacts at all. So the forces that put America's alliances in peril will be with us even if Trump is no longer beginning in January. Yeah, and before I bring in Jeremy, let's just focus in on that point, casting it forward, because I think you're closely associated with the Democrats, assuming, uh, or let's say, Joe Biden is president in November. I guess he will try to revive the alliance system. But how would you advise him to deal with this issue that you identify that it doesn't actually appear currently to be inhibiting Russia and China from challenging the United States? I think that the American alliance system needs a whole lot more than restoration. Quite to the contrary, it needs to be wholly renovated um, and brought into non-military domains. The system was constructed, as we've already discussed, in the early Cold War era to deter and defend against the Soviet Union. But that really meant trying to prevent nuclear and military conflict. And so much of what we see by way of 21st century competition is not likely to be military conflict at all, although, of course, a war with Russia or China remains possible. So really, the task for the United States and its allies is trying to deter things like massive cyber attacks on critical infrastructure or state-backed election interference campaigns, and also using alliances to coordinate around things like the national security implications of China's 5G networks or better preparing us for the next global health crisis. So really, if the United States fails to renovate this system, if it allows it to stay static, it will miss so much of the action that we're likely to see in the 21st century. And this tool, which has been such a successful tool of statecraft in American foreign policy, will not be with us for decades more. Okay, well, I'd like to bring in Jeremy now, because you reviewed uh, Mira's book in, in largely positive terms, but towards the end, you struck a kind of sceptical note. And the sentence that jumped out at me, because it's a very unusual thing to hear from a somebody who's worked for the American government in foreign policy, was you wrote, US global leadership is no longer possible or desirable. Can you uh, justify that? I can try. You know, I think it's, it is heretical, because it is not de rigueur in Washington to ever talk about the limits of U.S. power. Because the United States is, you know, 
these days riven by polarization, uh, has a lot of domestic dysfunction, and it's really not in a position to lead the world. I think all of this is recoverable. I mean, the United States has recovered from this kind of thing uh, before, but the way that you recover is not by staking out the need to defend countries that are so far away and ignoring your problems at home. The way to do that is to make sure that you can bring your commitments in line with your capacities. The reason it's not desirable, I suppose, is is that the U.S. public is not clamoring for it. In fact, the research shows that people generally see foreign policy problems that don't affect them through a partisan lens. And that's why, for example, the Republican basis position on Russia has changed so dramatically in the last four years. What the public wants these days from its leaders, as I think most of the presidential candidates have found out on the campaign trail in the last couple of elections, is they want a greater focus on uh, their problems at home. Uh, And that, I think, creates another constraint on what the U.S. can do. Can I just challenge you, before I bring in Mira, um, you say it's not desirable in the sense that it's not desired by the American public, but isn't it part of the function of leadership to say, well, we can look a bit further ahead. And if America allowed its alliance system to crumble, not just the world, but the United States would actually suffer quite malign consequences. Isn't that the case? Well, I mean, you know, if we want to talk about the future, anything is possible. Maybe I could have added to that phrase that it's not necessary. Obviously, if you have a lot of power and you want to go out into the world and stabilize every region of the world, that has some advantages and that reduces risk. But the United States has other options in its defense policies. It's not clear to me that the U.S. role in the world has been that dramatically stabilizing of late. Um, And it's not clear to me that a lot of the things that the U.S. is doing in far-flung regions are necessary or useful for U.S. defense. What more often has happened is that in an effort to sort of defend its leadership role, It has gotten involved in every problem, and sometimes that's been helpful, but I think more often lately, it's been not helpful either to the problems or to the United States. Yeah, Mira, how do you respond to that? I think that Jeremy and I are actually aligned in the view that the United States does not have a hope of restoring itself to the commanding heights of its post-Cold War power. That is, in simpler terms, American primacy is over. And I do not believe that we can sustain a foreign policy that denies that fact. But saying that it's in the interest of the United States to have some form of international leadership is not the same thing as saying that the United States can or should be restored to its pre-Trump global heights. So the question is not, does the United States need a new global strategy? I think we both agree that it very much does. The question is, what does that new global role look like? To my mind, so long as American security and prosperity are better served by some form of internationalism, even if it's a far more disciplined one than we've seen for the last few decades, Washington is overwhelmingly likely to want to salvage this system for the way ahead because it allows it to conduct its foreign policy in a more cost-effective way than it could otherwise. The agenda that I'm suggesting here is still a massive undertaking, but the reason to do it is because it's far preferable to the alternative, which would be a go-it-alone retreat, which would ultimately accrue significant costs in blood and treasure for the United States. Look, I mean, it's. I think it's quite difficult sometimes, for me at least, to disentangle primacy and leadership. I don't think that the alternative to leadership is a go-it-alone approach. 
Um, and I certainly wouldn't recommend that or want that. I think everybody likes allies. It's always good to work with other countries on issues of mutual concern. And the United States is an outward facing country and always will be. And so it's going to need to do that. The question is, does it need to be at the center of every coalition? Does it need to be at the center of every problem? The problem that we have right now is that this is the way that U.S. officials think. I mean, that's why Joe Biden's foreign policy manifesto is about restoring leadership. Every ally hears this as the United States is going to come in and run the type of alliance that it ran during the Cold War and even more that it ran after the post-Cold War. And I think what we need, the kind of rebalancing that we need, and actually I think the kind of rebalancing that, that you're talking about, Mira, really does require an ability to not lead everything. I was really struck by this when I was in the government during the, the decision to go into Libya in 2011. Because in that moment, the U.S. government, broadly speaking, was of the view that it was a bad idea. Uh, the president didn't like it. The State Department didn't like it. The Defense Department didn't like it. And then something interesting happened. The British and the French essentially said to the Secretary of State, you know what? If you're not interested, fine, we'll do it ourselves. And that immediately turned the whole U.S. government apparatus because their view was they can't do it without us because then we wouldn't be leading it. Well, the British and the French can't do it alone because they'll screw it up. Not failing to notice that at the moment the U.S. was screwing up two wars of its own. I think that was not a salutary development for, um, for the world or for U.S. foreign policy. But Jeremy, before I just come back to Mira, I mean, you could also say America has stood aside from certain conflicts, Syria, so, so, so not always intervening. And the results have not been great, have they? Well, the U.S. did not stand aside from Syria. I really have to insist on that point. The U.S. did intervene in Syria in, in quite a serious way. The U.S. sent a lot of forces into Syria, sent a lot of bombs into Syria and armed a lot of rebels in Syria. Um, so no, the US didn't stand aside from Syria. And obviously they could have done more, but they certainly could have done less as well. And I think that speaks to the difficulty that the US has in standing aside. Syria is an example of sort of the worst of all possible worlds where the US intervened enough to satisfy its leadership itch, but not enough to actually help the problem. And it reflects the fact that it wasn't interested enough in the issue itself didn't really have the power, or at least the power and the will to do something about it, and yet still couldn't stand aside. Mira, I'd like to give you an opportunity to respond to that, but also ask you a specific question about Asia, which is your particular area of expertise. The arguments you address in the book is the idea that alliances risk dragging America into war. And a lot of people have written books about the threat that America will end up at war with China isn't it the big risk that America is going to take in Asia is that its alliances with Japan, with South Korea, quasi-alliance uh, with Taiwan might actually end up in a war with China? I think there's no question the United States has made a number of very poor policy decisions on foreign battlefields, whether you're talking about Vietnam or you're talking about Iraq much more recently. Um, but in no case on record did it make those decisions because a treaty ally pulled it into war. That is, the United States is quite capable of committing itself to conflicts that it cannot win 
without being dragged in by its allies. And in fact, no U.S. ally has ever dragged the United States into war, at least as long as we're talking about American treaty allies in Europe and Asia. When it comes to the question of whether or not this is a risk in Asia as China continues to rise, the clear answer is yes, it's a risk, but it's always been a risk. And the way that the United States has managed it in the past is through smart alliance design. Uh, That is crafting its treaty commitments as it has to leave them sufficiently vague so that it doesn't get nailed down to any one piece or obligation of intervention and getting out of alliance commitments, frankly, when they became too onerous or no longer served its national interests. So there's no question that alliances in Asia mean that the United States is now in the region and could therefore be exposed to conflict that it wouldn't be otherwise. But the alternative may be, may well be, an Asia that is increasingly under China's hierarchical control. We've seen a good demonstration of this during the pandemic crisis just the last few months, where China has been in a territorial full court press Uh, putting pressure on the South China Sea, over Taiwan, on Hong Kong, on its border with India, launching a cyber attack on Australia. So the alternative to the United States having a presence in Asia is to accept the risk that China's increasing presence in Asia results in an Asia that is increasingly under its domination. Now, some U.S. policymakers might be willing to accept that, um, but the United States has generally seen the freedom and access to both Asia and Europe as a defining feature of its own grand strategy. So the question is, how can we have these alliances in Asia without entrapping Washington in undue risk? To my mind, it means keeping the same ambiguity in these commitments that has allowed us to manage them deftly thus far. It means insisting that allies do more on some of these frontline issues where the United States has less of a relative stake on things like maritime disputes. And as Jeremy suggests, it means rebalancing our responsibilities within our alliances so that allies are not only taking on more of a financial burden, but taking on more by way of responsibility in Asia. Um, And by doing that, the United States can continue to manage this risk. Jeremy, I mean, can I just pull out something Mira said? She said, if you you don't back this, essentially you're accepting Chinese hegemony in Asia. Is that the case? I don't think so. Hope not. I would not like to have Chinese hegemony in Asia. I do sometimes wonder why it is that the U.S. is so much more interested in opposing Chinese hegemony in Asia than Asians are. Um, And my guess is we're not. My guess is that that's actually a primary interest of Japan and South Korea and Indonesia and India and a bunch of powerful countries uh, around the rim of China. So the problem for the Chinese of establishing hegemony in East Asia is not just about the United States. It's not even primarily about the United States. But we have created this idea that it is the United States' role above all of these other countries to prevent that outcome. I think it should be primarily their roles. My view is that Asians should be thinking about how to resist Chinese hegemony, and then we should be assisting them. But the Washington view is that what we should do is establish an anti-Chinese alliance that they can then join and be part of. And the problem with that is that once we do, when we do that, we send the message to these allies that we're going to try to continue the Cold War and post-Cold War tradition of basically taking responsibility and taking leadership for the very difficult problem of opposing uh, Russia in Eastern Europe, of opposing China in East Asia, and opposing someone else somewhere else. 
Uh, and I don't think we're up to that anymore. Okay, Mira, I'd like to leave you with the last word. Aside from what you would like to happen, what do you think will happen if you had to look ahead for the next 10 years? Do you think that this American alliance system we've got so used to, as you, in the way you describe in your books in the post-1945 era, do you think it will survive? Well, I think it's highly likely that the American alliance system will survive, but it could survive in at least three different ways. And of course, the upcoming election in the United States will be highly deterministic in each one of these three outcomes. First, it's possible that President Trump will be reelected. And in this world, he could try to withdraw the United States from NATO or American alliances in Asia. But more likely is that he would let these alliances live and try to sap their power from within, perhaps withdrawing troops or undermining the political relationships wherever he could. Second, it's possible that instead a President Biden could be elected. And while there's no doubt that Biden would recommit the United States to its alliances and try to rebuild the political relationships, mere restoration wouldn't be enough to really make them effective in the 21st century. But third and best would be if a President Biden was elected and committed to the remaking of this alliance system working to bring alliances to new areas and improving the balances in spending and responsibility between America and its allies. Now, this third world is far from guaranteed, and it would be a massive political undertaking for any new administration. But it is far preferable to either of the others in which the American alliance system will be increasingly weak, and the United States and its allies will increasingly face threats alone. So I can only hope for the best. That was Mira Rapp-Hopper and Jeremy Shapiro ending this edition of the Rachman Review. If you'd like some further inspiration about what to read this summer, I invite you to take a look at the FT's annual summer book series where our writers and critics have chosen their favourites of 2020 so far. Find over 200 possible books to add to your summer reading list at ft.com slash summerbooks2020. And please join us again next week and find us in all the usual podcast apps. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.